This morning, I'd like to begin where I ended last night in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 8. The Lord speaking here says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. What a, just a wonderful way the Lord expressed himself here. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Letters make up words, and words are used to communicate with. There's never been a greater communicator than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's referred to, I believe, in 1 John 5, 7 as the Word. There are three that bear a record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. I might seem kind of odd that the second person of the Godhead be referred to as the Word, spelled with a capital W. That's because he is our great communicator. He stands between God and men as our great mediator. In Hebrews chapter 1, it begins with saying, God who died at sundry times in divers manners, speaking times past in the fathers by the prophets, hath in his last days spoken to us by his Son. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, without him was not anything made that was made. I'm Alpha, and I'm Omega and everything in between, the beginning and the end. Later, he will say the first and the last. I believe all these are saying basically the same thing. In fact, the expression first and last is used several times concerning God in the book of Isaiah, over 700 years before this is written here. But he is the first and the last in so many different ways. Uh, when it comes to our faith, Hebrews chapter 12, Paul says, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that does so easily beset us, looking to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. It means he's the alpha of our faith. He's the omega of our faith. Man by nature doesn't have faith. Faith is the gift of God. God is the alpha of that. He is the first of that. He'll also be the last of that. The day will come you won't need faith. The day will come you'll see the Lord for yourself. And you won't be looking and using faith. But how important faith is now for us to use. Uh, we see in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's the alpha. People are really afraid that uh, man's going to destroy this world. He doesn't have to worry about that. The, the Lord's got already taken care of. Second Peter chapter 3, we're told the day will come. The day of the Lord's like a thief in the night. And the heavens shall melt with fervent heat. And the elements, you know, uh, shall be dissolved with a great noise. Uh, that's going to happen one day. The Lord did promise he'd never destroy the earth by a flood again. But he promised in 2 Peter 3 that he'll bring all things to an end by fire. So he's the Alpha and the Omega of that. He's certainly the Alpha and Omega of our salvation, isn't he? Amen. You know, when it comes to that work in your heart, Philippians 1, 6, being caught in this very thing, that he hath which have begun a good work in your heart, shall perform until the day of Jesus Christ. He's the Alpha and the Omega of that. Our salvation on the cross. I love the words of the Lord in John 19, 30, when he said, it is finished. That's what we believe. We don't believe he started it. <laughs> and man's got to complete it. We believe the Lord finished it, just like he said. It's got an ED on it. You start reading all the words in the Bible, uh, that are important words like justification, reconciliation, redemption, you'll find those words in an ED showing a completed action. He says, it is finished. Something that the Lord started, he finished. He's the Alpha, and he's the Omega. When it comes to the law, God gave it to Israel on Mount Sinai. He was the Alpha, that was he not? He's one who delivered that. He's the author of his law. Romans 10, 4, Paul said, but Christ is the end of the law for righteous sake to everyone that believeth." Jesus said, thank I've come not to destroy the law, but rather to fulfill the law. He's the Alpha and Omega of that. And it's just a sampling of the things that he's the first and last of and the beginning and the end. Now, he says he's also he which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I don't know of another expression to describe God or a, a title of God than the then the word almighty is any more powerful than that. Now, the word omnipresent 
uh, excuse me, um, um, omnipotent is used in Revelation chapter 19, which means God has all power. But I like to think about God being almighty. Uh, eight different times, John will use that expression here in the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is a very important book as far as I'm concerned. I think it's one of the greatest books of encouragement that's found in, in the Bible, the 66 books. Yet it's one of the most least read books, I would say, the 66. And many who read this book uh, read it for the wrong reason. Uh, they read it out of curiosity because of all the symbols in it and all the images and all these kind of things. And they are very important, and it is a book of that. That's, that's for sure. But the book of Revelation was written to encourage people. It was written to encourage the saints of God in seven churches called the seven churches of Asia. And Christ will instruct John to write the things which he shall see, which we will look at in just a moment. And he's to send it to these seven churches. These churches were experiencing trials of which I have really no experience. I think I could say I've had some trials in life and some tribulations in life, but to relate to what the seven, the congregation, these seven churches was going through is something that uh, I can't really relate to. They were being persecuted for their faith being persecuted for their discipleship. They were losing their jobs. Uh, they were losing their liberty. Some were losing their lives. And John is going to write a book to them called the book of Revelation that's going to encourage them. But it just wasn't for them. I believe this book has been a book of encouragement to congregations for 20 centuries. In every century, in every generation since that time, in this present day, the book of Revelation should be a book of encouragement to you an encouragement to me. In fact, we we're given this promise earlier when he says blessed, and there's seven beatitudes, by the way, in the book of Revelation. People usually think about the book of Matthew chapter five, and certainly there are some beautiful beatitudes there, but there are seven blesseds in the book of Revelation. Here's the first one. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the sayings of this book and keep them. Now, the blessings for those that read and those that hear and for those that keep it. It's kind of like James writes to us in James chapter one. Where he speaks about the perfect law of liberty, you know, and he speaks about those who are hearers of the word and not doers of it. But he that looking at the perfect law of liberty, you know, is both he that is a doer and a hearer and a doer of the work. And he's the one that shall be blessed, not just the hearer, but the hearer and the doer. You know, when you read the Bible, I think some uh, people don't read the Bible because they find themselves too much in it. Uh, you know, they, it's too, they get too much of an honest evaluation <laughs> of their life. To me, it's like stepping on scales. Some people don't like to weigh because they don't like what they see. So they just don't weigh. They just guess at their weight, you know, and they can good guessers, good estimators. I know when I go to the doctor and weigh, um, it takes me a while to get on the scales because I'm going to take my watch off, my billfold out, my money clip, my comb, my pen, my phone, my belt, and my shoes. And now I got down about three pounds left. And, I can, and, and I've already weighed for a left, so I can save them all that trouble. They just won't take my word for it. They, they want to see for themselves what I weigh. But, you know, when you look into the perfect law of liberty, it's going to tell you the truth. It's like looking into the mirror. Now, I'm glad this morning I looked into a mirror before I came, and I'm glad you did too, because it told me I needed to improve. I, there were some improvements I needed to make before I got to the house of God today, and I'm glad we all did this. We all came here just like we looked when we got up. <laughs> It'd be quite a sight, wouldn't it? So that's what the Word of God is. So bless he that readeth, and they that hear the sayings of this book. If you don't read the book, you're not going to get the blessing. If you don't hear the sayings of the book, you're not going to get the blessing. If you don't keep the sayings of the book, you're not going to get the blessings, you see. So we find here where the Lord addresses himself, or speaks to John here, as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. And then John says, I, John, I, John, am your brother in tribulation and companionship uh, and tribulation. I am your brother and companion in tribulation and also in the kingdom and patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle John was used of God, used of God to give us three wonderful works of Christian literature, you might say. He wrote the gospel of John. He wrote first, second, and third John. 
He wrote the book of Revelation. And all these books are somewhat different. John was a human writer, but God himself is the author of all these books, as he is all 66 of the Bible. The Bible is given by inspiration of God. But John speaks of himself in the Gospel of John. He speaks about that one who leaned upon Jesus' breast. He identifies himself a little bit differently. Then in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he doesn't say, he doesn't use his name in those three letters. And then here he just says, I, John. Now you could have told the people, I'm the one that walked with the Lord Jesus Christ about 60 years ago. I was with the Lord Jesus Christ on the mountain of transfiguration. I was with the Lord Jesus Christ. We raised up Jairus' daughter from the dead. I was with the Lord Jesus Christ in the ship in that first great storm and the ship in the second great storm, so forth and so on. He could have said all of that, but he didn't. He just says, I'm your brother and your companion. The word companion means to be a partaker of. That's what a real companion is. A companion is more than just somebody walking beside you. A companion is somebody that's willing to be a partaker of whatever you're facing. He'd be willing to share with you in your trials and your challenges of life. He said, I'm your brother and also your companion. What? In tribulation. Uh, John was going through tribulation like those that he's writing to is going to send this book to. He says, I'm on the Isle of Patmos. And I'm there for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. See, uh, he wasn't in the Caribbean. <laughs> he's uh, on the Isle of Patmos, uh, island about 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. About uh, a small island, but it was an island of the Roman authorities and uh, powers. And this is where they put their prisoners, where they banished people like John, because they didn't like John preaching the gospel. They didn't like John because he was promoting the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. But John says, I'm your brother. And that's, you know, a, a word that I really like. Uh, I, I like calling each one of you brother and sister. Shows a kinship, doesn't it? Shows a relationship we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's special. The very first time this is actually used in this sense is in Acts chapter 9. Now, the word's used in the Gospels, but it's usually talking about how two Jewish men, they would consider themselves brothers if they were both Jewish people, even though they might not be biologically connected. But in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus struck down the way to Damascus. As he struck down on that road, we find where the Lord deals with him. And he's also dealing with a preacher called Ananias. And he tells Ananias that he's to meet Saul of Tarsus there in Damascus. And, of course, Ananias is very concerned about this. He said, Lord, we've heard a lot about this man. But the Lord tells him two things that calms him down. First of all, he says he's a chosen vessel unto me. Uh, that calmed him down. Then he says, behold, he prayeth. Now, I'm sure Saul had been praying many pharisaical prayers, but I believe the Lord's talking about he's now praying a real prayer, a prayer from the depths of his heart, because he's seen himself to be a sinner because I have arrested him on the road to Damascus. And when he's told him, behold, he prayer, that kind of calmed things down for Ananias. And when he met him, he struck out his hand and he said, brother Saul, he called him brother. Now, he wouldn't have called him brother prior to this, I tell you that. But now the Lord's assured him, he's one of you. You're one of him. <laughs> Y'all are together. And so he calls him Brother Saul. Now, Peter's going to call him Brother Paul over here in 2 Peter 3, when he says, Paul has written things. Our brother Paul has written things that are hard to be understood. So he's addressed as a brother in both cases. His name changes, but he's a brother over here, and he's a brother over there. I remember one time, uh, this uh, very wonderful couple, Little Union Church, many years ago, wanted to take uh, me to a clothing store and, and buy me a sport coat. And we went there and I tried one on. I thought, well, what do you think about this, Brother Ira? That was the man's name, Ira. I said, what do you think about this, Brother Ira? And he made some comment and I tried another one on. And finally, the sales lady was catching on. So I tried one on. She said, I think this looks great. What do you think, Brother Ira? <laughs> <laughs> so she called on about all that. But uh, she didn't use it like I used it. So if I see you at church, I'm going to call you brother or sister. If I see you at Walmart, that's where I usually find people that come to church on Sunday, uh, you know, on Monday. But anyway, I'm going to call him brother, and I'm going to call him sister there as well. So he keeps himself on their level is what I'm trying to tell you right here. He didn't try to put himself above them. He tried to put himself on the same level. He said, I, John, your brother and companion, we're walking together in this, in tribulation, in tribulation. Now, tribulation can be severe 
But I can tell you one thing over here in Romans 8, 35, and Paul says, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? You know, the very first thing you list there is tribulation. He says, tribulation cannot separate you from the love of God. So whatever trial you may be experiencing, whatever trial you may be going through, whatever tribulation you may be experiencing, just remember this, it's short-lived. And it cannot separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he says he was on the Isle of Patmos and uh, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I think it's one to be in the spirit every day. Don't you? And I believe we can. I believe we can be in the spirit any day of the week. But I really love being in the spirit on the Lord's day. I'll just have to admit that. And I believe the Lord's day on consideration right here is the first day of the week. I believe it's Sunday, the day the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the grave. Go to Mark chapter 16, verse 9. You'll find where he says, And Jesus arose early from the grave that first day of the week. And from that time forward, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ have been recognizing and celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week in recognition and celebration of his victory over death and the grave. Acts 20 and verse 7, it says, The disciples met on the first day of the week for the breaking of bread. I believe that again to be the first day being the Lord's day being Sunday. 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Paul said, And as I've given orders to the church of Galatia, even so I give unto thee, upon the first day of the week, that every one of you lay aside as God has prospered him. See, we are to recognize that we should honor the Lord with everything we have. In the book of Proverbs chapter 3, says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and the first fruits of thine increase. And on the first day of the week, with purpose, we're to lay aside, we're to think about it, we're to consider it, we're to pray about it. And give a lot of thought to how God has prospered us and lay that aside and bring it to the house of God to honor him. Wasn't for God, we wouldn't have anything to begin with, would we? Everything we have belongs to God. He's just letting us use it while we travel here in this world. It was somebody else's before we got. It's going to be somebody else's after we leave. And so we should honor the Lord in, a, in this manner. The first day of the week, he says, I was in the spirit of the Lord on that day. Now, it's important, I think, for us to strive to be in the Spirit. In the book of John, chapter 4, verse 23, the Lord Jesus Christ said, the true worshiper of God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, if I'm going to worship God acceptably and properly, I've got to do it in the Spirit and also in truth. So those who don't possess the Spirit are not going to be able to do that. If you possess the Spirit, that's wonderful. And now we need the truth to go along with that. And I think the truth is very important. Jesus said in John 8, 33, you shall know the truth and what? And the truth shall make you free. I like liberty and freedom. And uh, some of the truth I spoke of last night has given me a lot of freedom during this COVID situation. You know, I think there's, there's always a balance here. I believe God wants us to act responsibly. I think he wants us to, to use uh, what he put on our shoulders between our ears here and, and all these kind of things. But trusting in the Lord comes in here somewhere, right? Trusting the Lord comes in here somewhere. So there's a balance about these things. So we want to worship God in spirit and in truth. We need to be in the spirit on the Lord's day. Galatians 5 and 25 uh, it says, now, if you in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. And if you walk in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So it's important to walk in the spirit. It's important to worship God in spirit. It's important to be in the spirit on any day, but especially the Lord's day. Because on this day, worshiping God in spirit and truth is essential. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, where the apostle Paul said, I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with understanding. I will sing with the spirit and sing with understanding. I believe last night and today we sang in the spirit. And these hymns were so wonderful. Uh, uh, they were appropriate hymns. We sing in the spirit and you sing with understanding. Pray in the spirit and pray with understanding. In 1 Corinthians 2, the apostle Paul said, my speech and my teaching was not impressive words or, you know, of man's language or man's speech and in the wisdom of men, but it was demonstration of the spirit and also of power. So if we want to have a spirit-filled meeting, we have to sing in the Spirit, we have to pray in the Spirit, and we have to preach in the Spirit. And the only way to do that is to be in the Spirit 
on the Lord's day. I like to be around spirit-filled people. In fact, we're commanded to be spirit-filled in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. It says, and be ye not unwise, understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but being filled with the Spirit. And then he says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice in this verse here, when we sing, we're singing to the Lord. We're singing to the Lord. Now, the Lord just knows what's coming out of the heart. We may not have a good voice. We may not be able to carry a tune in a bucket. It's always been pretty impressive to me how you can get a whole congregation of people together, and some got good voices, some don't have good voices at all. I, I won't name anybody. Uh, but anyway, anyway, there's a reason I don't lead singing. I meant to throw that out there as a hint. Uh, you know, and, and, but anyhow, when you put them all together, somehow or another comes out good. Do you ever notice that? Somehow or another, it sounds great. It sounds good. You know, sometimes young men try to sing to their prospective brides, you know, to try to impress them. I never did do that because I didn't want to lose what I had. <laughs> but, you know, I like trying to sing to the Lord. I know he's not judging me on the quality of my voice. He's judging me on what's in my heart right here. So I want to be in the spirit as John was. There's no better place to be than be in the spirit on the Lord's day, walking in the spirit, praying in the spirit, singing in the spirit, preaching in the spirit. When you got that, you'll have more than a good meeting. You'll have a great meeting. I like to tell people when they uh, on the phone after church on Sunday, what kind of meeting you have today? I like to tell them, we had a great meeting. Sometimes I ask other people, so we had a good meeting. I said, well, that's fine. We had a great meeting. <laughs> you know, and that's what I like to tell people that I'm not on church on Sunday, but I just happen to run into them. You know, like I said, Walmart or somewhere, <laughs> a, a Monday or Tuesday. You know, they, they're sick on Sunday, but they well on Monday. And anyway, I like to tell them, well, sure didn't miss you yesterday. I tell you, you should have been there. I mean, the rafters were shaking. The windows was rattling. I'm telling you, never heard such singing in all your life. I said, it was just wonderful. I thought uh, maybe the Lord gave me extraordinary liberty yesterday. And I'm telling you, we just had a, a great, great meeting. I'm just so sorry you weren't there to enjoy it. I'm just so sorry that you weren't there to be part of it, you know. But we've got next Sunday coming up. we got another opportunity. So I see you Sunday. I always try to end with so much conversation, you know, by telling them, like David said, I was glad. And they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Uh, when I get through talking to somebody, I said, see you Sunday. <laughs> I'll see you Sunday. We went to church one time. I was in North Carolina on a preaching trip, and uh, we'd been eating breakfast each morning at the house. And the preacher said, uh, well, Sunday morning, we're going to stop at Hardy's on the way and give the wife a break. I said, that's great. You know, we'll stop at Hardy's. So we stop at Hardy's and we're in line to order our food. And looking over there, sitting at a table, is a couple who are church members in street clothes. And the pastor says, uh, I'll be back in a minute. I need to go visit a little bit. And I looked over and I noticed they quit eating. You know, and they lost their appetite. The pastor sat down with them. Obviously, they had no plans to go to church. And so their, their meal... <laughs> That meal was just ruined. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I, I thought they got what they deserved. You know what I mean? They certainly wasn't in the spirit. They was, yeah, they, they was hungry, but they weren't in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a, a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, remember John's on the Isle of Patmos, and this is his experience. I heard a great voice as a trumpet. Now, a trumpet was used to communicate. It was, it was like a voice. It was used to communicate all through the Old Testament days. Um, in the book of Numbers chapter 10, God told Moses to tell Israel to make two trumpets of, a sil uh, two trumpets of silver, uh, a whole piece. Thou shalt make them. Notice these trumpets here are silver. A lot of times the trumpets are made out of ram's horns. Like the ones we mentioned last night when Joshua and them was going around the city of Jericho, the seven priests were blowing with uh, ram's horns. But they were blowing at a certain time for a certain reason. It gave a certain signal that people understood what the sound of the trumpets meant. But these are silver trumpets here. Silver is the picture of purity in the Word of God, like the Word of God is, you know. As David uh, writes in Psalms 12, 6, he says, For the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver trying to furnish earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation for 
ever. I believe every word in God's word is inspired and preserved. I don't think there's any errors in God's word, no contradictions in God's word. I can read this book with confidence. I can read this book and trust everything that's recorded in it. It's been helping me, and I've been getting along with it for nearly 50 years. I'm not about to change now, all right? So these trumpets, though, one time they'd blow, it was for the assembling of the camps. Next time it blows was for the journeying of the camps. And you had to have somebody to blow it, knew how to blow them so they hear the right sound so the people would know what to do. But these were two silver trumpets of a whole piece. There was a unity here in it. And I think to me that pictures the Bible, for example. I think there's a unity in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think they fit together, representing two dispensations of time, but yet they fit together. I've already mentioned how we're to worship God in spirit, but also in truth over here. You know, it's a combination of the two. Um, then we can go on about that, but we won't. In uh, the book of Judges, chapter 7, we find where Gideon is 300 men. They all had a trumpet. There were 300 trumpets. And when he gave the, the, the signal, uh, they blew with those 300 trumpets. Can you imagine the sound that those 300 trumpets made when they were all blown at the same time? And they broke the pitchers. And let me just say this. They won that battle with light and sound. And what does the church have today? I believe we got the light and I believe we got the sound. I believe we got a light that we can let shine. I believe we got the sound of the gospel in Jesus Christ that gives a certain sound. David says, uh, you know, blessed he that knoweth the certain sound. He might walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. I want God's people to be able to understand this sound from all the other sounds that they hear out there. In fact, Paul made this statement in 1 Corinthians 14, 8. He said, if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for the battle? You got to have somebody blowing the trumpet, knows how to blow it, can blow the right, the right sound. So he said, I heard a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, this great voice he heard was the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm telling you, his voice is a great voice. It is so great, it can raise people from the dead. John 5 and 25, the Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming now is when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's a pretty great voice, isn't it? It's a life-giving voice, uh, not the voice of the preacher. Voice of the preacher can't give life to anybody. The words of the Lord can't give life to anybody. I've already quoted the words of the Lord here this morning several times. But the voice of God is what gives life. Just like it was when he called Lazarus from the grave. He called him personally. He called him individually. And he called him effectually. When he called his name, Lazarus responded. I don't find Lazarus saying, well, let me pray about it a while and I'll make a decision. I don't find Lazarus saying, well, I'll give it some consideration, Lord. Maybe I'll come out, maybe I won't. No, the Lord said, Lazarus, come forth. And there was immediate passive obedience on behalf of Lazarus when he came forth in that. He was drawn out by the power of this great voice. In Psalms 29, it's about the voice of God. It says, the voice of the Lord is great. It's full of majesty. It says, the voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Can you imagine that? The cedars, those tall, elegant trees, majestic trees there in Lebanon. It says, the voice of God breaketh those cedars. He can just speak, and they just split wide open. It causes the, uh, the hinds to calf. You know, the voice of the Lord is like flames of fire, et cetera, et cetera, describing how great God's voice, how powerful. That's the way it starts out. The voice of the Lord is powerful. We're talking about a power unknown to man. And the same voice that got you out of a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ is going to be the same voice that's going to get your body out of the grave. I don't know why people can't kind of see that, you know. Uh, verse 28 in John 5, the Lord said, marvel not at that. He says, the hour is coming when they are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. And what's in the grave? The body is in the grave. And the body is going to hear a voice. It's going to be the same voice that the soul heard in the early experience. It heard and was raised from a state of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord's going to speak and your body's going to hear it and come out of there. It's going to be a glorious time, isn't it? That trump, trumpet I was telling you about a while ago, you trace it all the way through, even to the morning of the resurrection. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, I'd not have you ignorant, brother, concerning them which are asleep in Christ, 
that you sorrow not in those which have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even though those which sleep in Christ shall God bring with him. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the force of the archangel and the trump of God. The trump's going to blow one more time. It's going to blow. 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye. For the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. That trump, my friends, is going to have a loud sound. It's going to be heard. But the voice of the Son of God is what's going to get you out of the grave. If the preacher can get you out of a state of death and sin, he can get you out of the grave. But the problem is he's going to be dead too. So how's the dead going to get you out? You know, that's why it says, what can the dead do, right? What can the dead do? Uh, in general speaking, uh, not anything. Uh, maybe vote. Maybe vote. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they, they do that quite often. Every, every election, the dead do uh, what they normally can't do. The dead vote. Um, but I do find one thing the dead can do. There's the man wanting to follow Jesus and let me go bury my father. He said, let the dead bury the dead. So I guess that's one thing the dead can do. Those who are dead to the things that you prize so highly, if they can go and take care of things that, you know, where you can give your attention to other matters. The Lord certainly wasn't speaking lightly of taking care of our loved ones in times like that. But uh, he says, well, just let the dead, if that's getting in your way, then let the dead bury the dead. Whatever's getting in your way, let the dead bury the dead. So then we find where he says, this man, notice here in verse uh, 11, he says, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest right in the book, send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he lists the churches. And I turned to see the voice. Now they have seen a voice, have you? <laughs> I hear a voice, but I haven't seen one. I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now we're going to be told at the end of this chapter, those seven golden candlesticks represent the seven churches of Asia. We don't have to guess about that, right? And in chapters 2 and chapter 3, you're going to find where the Lord is going to personally address all seven churches. He's going to give an inventory, so to speak. He's going to evaluate them, all seven churches. He's going to tell them what was right and what was wrong. And there was only two out of the seven that escaped the wrong business. The other five all had something wrong to go along with what was good, but the Lord pointed out. But before we talk about the seven churches, we're going to talk about the one who's in the midst of the seven churches, in the midst of the golden candlesticks. I saw one in the midst of the golden candlesticks. That word midst is, a, a, to me, is a pretty interesting word. You find it in the Bible. It goes all the way back uh, to the very book of Genesis in chapter 2, where the Lord speaks about two important trees in that garden. Of all the trees he made and created, he speaks about two of them. He speaks about the tree of knowledge of good and evil that got us and Adam in a lot of trouble, the rest of us. But he speaks about the tree of life, the tree of life. Where do you say the tree of life was? It's right in the midst of the garden, right in the midst. You come to Revelation chapter 22, and you're going to find where he says, I saw a pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God. And in the midst of it, on either side of it, was the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and bore its fruit. You know, every month, a very fruitful place, right? Well, it's right in the midst. When God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, recording for us in Exodus 3, you know, Moses there on the backside of the desert, he's now 80 years old. He's completed two-thirds of his life. His life's divided into three 40-year spans. He spent the first 40 in Egypt. He spends the next 40 in the backside of a desert. He gets educated by God in the second 40 years in contrast to his Egyptian education in the first 40 years. Which one do you think was most important? I'd say the one on the backside of the desert was most important where he spent all that time with God. And God's going to speak to him out of a bush that's burning, but's not consumed. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen anything like that. But the Bible says the angel of God spake unto Moses out of the midst, out of the midst of the bush. When Israel came out of the land of Egypt, God parted the Red Sea with a strong east wind. You know, I've heard all kind of reasons why, how the Red Sea got parted. One day I read, said, God sent a strong east wind. I thought, why didn't anybody else read that? <laughs> you know, God, God sent a strong east wind and just parted the sea, two great walls of water. And Israel crossed dry shod, the Bible says, in the midst, in the midst of the sea, right through the middle of the sea, dry shod to the other side. 
God will appear to them in Mount Sinai in a cloud where it says, and he was in the midst of the cloud. We come to the New Testament. The Lord said in Luke, excuse me, uh, Matthew chapter 18, in the context of, of offenses, he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Now, when we meet together, we want the Lord in the midst, do we not? We want the Lord to be right in the middle of it, just like he was in Luke 2. When the, uh, Joseph and Mary had left Jerusalem, they left there, had been there to worship, they left, and they went a day's journey when they made a realization that Jesus wasn't with them. I tell you, that startled them, and it startles me if I think Jesus isn't with me. I like the Lord to be with me, don't you? I like, you know, going down the road, traveling sometimes I'm by myself. Uh, I may just be me, myself, and I, but I like to have the Lord as my companion. And me and the Lord talk a lot in those circumstances. I just tell him everything. You know, I don't inform him about anything. I just tell him about everything. Just it makes me feel good to talk to him and to pray to him. Somebody said, Brother Lawrence, don't you know prayer don't really mean anything? No, I do not know that. <laughs> and where did you get that? Why, well, I got it out of the Bible. I said, yes, you did. To the left in Genesis, to the right of Revelation, way out of the Bible. <laughs> now, I admit this. <laughs> it makes me feel, it says, just makes you feel good. Have you ever felt bad after you talked to the Lord? It always makes me feel good. A little talk when Jesus goes a long ways. And I didn't just tell him anything and everything. And I know he won't tell anybody else. He's the only one I know I can do that with. You know, if you want somebody to know something, you just tell somebody else about it and tell them not to tell it. And it's a sure thing they're going to hear it. Uh, that's the surest way to do it. But I can tell the Lord anything about anything. Know he already knows it. And he'll listen to me. And I don't have to worry about him sharing it with somebody else. I don't have to worry about him telling somebody else. I just, uh, uh, you know, I saw this on Facebook. I mean, Facebook the other day, you know, uh, where <laughs> this couple, uh, this, this couple are uh, splitting up and, and they're just accusing each other of everything in the world right out there on social media. And I'm thinking, why? I don't understand that. Why do you think anybody's interested in that? Why, why do you want to air out all that stuff on Facebook? I don't understand it. Or I said it again. I mean, Facebook or fake book, whichever it is, fake book, Facebook, whatever. But I know it's a good, some good things on Facebook. <laughs> but it's just like everything else, like television. There's good programming and there's bad programming. You got to know the difference, know how to turn it off, right? You, know, you got to turn it off. But they were missing Jesus. And they went to look for him and search for him. And they finally found him after three days. And notice, it takes you longer to refine him than it did to lose him, right? When you get out of sorts with the Lord, it'll take you a lot longer to get back with him than it did before you ever lost him. They traveled three days back. They finally find him there in the temple. And the Bible says he was in 12 years old. He's in the midst of the doctors hearing and asking them questions. He was in the center. He's 12 years old. Think about it. A 12-year-old boy right there in the center. And here's all these adult doctors and lawyers and everything else. They're all around him, and he's holding court right in the middle. When Jesus Christ was crucified, where was he at? Was it Jesus, thief, thief? Thief, thief, and Jesus? Or thief, thief, and Jesus in the middle? Right in the middle, right? I want Jesus to be in the midst of our worship service. I want to center my life around the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you do as well. It kind of makes me think of a wagon wheel. You know, you got the rim out here and you got the hub in the middle and you got the spokes connecting the hub to the rim all around there. And all those spokes represent something real important in your life. And there are a lot of things important in your life. They shouldn't be. My wife's important. My children are important. My family's important. The church is important. My brothers and sisters are important. My health is important. All kind of things are important. But I don't want Jesus to be the spoke. I want him to be the hub. I want everything to revolve around him, that he's first in my life. He is the, he's the first fruit to them that slept. He's the firstborn among many brethren. He is the first begotten of the dead, right? And he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness saying shall be added to you. And that's why we meet on the first day of the week, because everything about him should be first. So he sees the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And he looked and he saw him as a son of man. Now, about 60 years prior to this, 
the Apostle John saw the Lord and Jesus Christ in human flesh. He walked with him for three and a half years, but he looks different now, doesn't he? In Revelation chapter 1, he looks different than he did when he was walking with him, and you know, through Galilee and uh, in the streets of Jerusalem and different places. He looks entirely different because now I believe we have a picture of the glorified Christ. Remember, this book is going to go to the seven churches of Asia, and it's going to be read in each congregation. And they didn't uh, mass produce these books back in that day where everybody had one. If you, let's just say you was one of those churches and you come here today and somebody says, uh, uh, here, I got a book that John the Apostle has sent for us to read. And it starts off reading just like this, just like I've read to you here this morning, quoted you from Revelation chapter 1. Is that going to lift your spirits? Is it going to lift your spirits? He says earlier here that he, uh, you know, has loved you and washed you from your sins and made you kings and priests unto God. He has loved you and washed you and made us. I like the us's of the Bible. <laughs> when I look at what the word us refers to, I don't know if that's a word or not, Brother Josh. Us's, is it? I guess since I'm preaching, I'm making it one. All right? I love the us's in the Bible. For example, Ephesians 1, 4. According yes, as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will. Praise to the glory of his grace, which made us accepted in the beloved. I love the, the word us in the Bible. He hath loved us and washed us. Notice, he didn't wash us and love us. He loved us before he was ever washed. In other words, he loved you when you were unlovable. You, by nature, are unlovable. I don't care what you think about yourself. I don't care how you think you look and you look in the mirror and one thing and another and how well you dress yourself up. Before, <laughs> before you were unlovable when God loved you. That's the miracle of God's love. He loved you when you were unlovable. He did the miraculous. He loved you, and then he washed you from your sin and made you kings and priests unto the Lord. I'm sure when that got read to them, they got the feeling a little bit better. Don't you? It had to build them up. had to encourage them some. So he sees the Son of Man, I believe, in his glorified state. It says his head and his hair was white like wool. White's a picture of purity in the Word of God, but it also denotes uh, uh, the Ancient of Days in the Old Testament. I believe having reference to the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a totally different picture than what uh, John saw again about 60 years prior to that. Then he says his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, the Bible says, in all places, run to and fro throughout all the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those uh, who put their trust in him. Here are eyes that are, the, I believe, represent the omniscience of the Lord. He sees everything and knows everything. There's nothing hid from the Lord. You never educate the Lord, never teach the Lord. The Lord's never learned anything. The Lord's never forgotten anything. And he sees everything. His eyes are eyes of, of fire coming out. And then it says his feet were like uh, brass. And he says they uh, like a burning, uh, like fine brass, they burn in the furnace. Uh, that would remind me of the, uh, you know, in the tabernacle had seven pieces of furniture, and that first one out there was the altar, the brazen altar, where the sacrifice was made, the offer, the offering was made there, where the animal was slain. Well, the Lord's feet is just like that; they're feet of judgment, in other words. And then it said, out of his mouth uh, went a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, this sword cuts in both directions. Part of our armor in Ephesians chapter 6 is what? The word of God, which is the sword, uh, sword of the spirit, right? We have the word of God. And this word of God cuts, brethren. It'll cut both ways. And then he says he held the seven stars in his hand. And we don't have to guess about that. Those seven stars are the seven angels to the seven churches of Asia, the seven messengers. And when I think about that, I believe they're in the hands of the Lord in terms of their calling, number one. A man cannot preach the gospel in Jesus Christ unless he has a literal, real call from God out of heaven. And God must call him if he's going to preach the gospel in Jesus Christ. But also, I believe they're in the hands of God in terms of his divine guidance and providence, brethren, as to where they should labor and where they should preach and uh, where they should minister here, that they recognize they're in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ and is, they should be subjective unto the will of God. So he holds those seven stars in his right hand. It says his voice is like that of many waters. 
And I think about that. I think about uh, Niagara Falls, for example. If you've ever been there, you know what a loud sound, a loud roar it is. And those waters come coming over those falls there. And I'll tell you, that voice of the Lord, once again, it's great. It's majestic. Uh, it uh, is a life-giving voice. It's a voice that's effectual. His voice like many waters. And it said his face with his countenance like the sun that shineth in his strength. In the Old Testament, the sun was an image. The imagery of the sun oftentimes was used to represent God. Like Malachi chapter 4, In that day shall the Son of Righteousness, that's spelled capital S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. I'm telling you, tomorrow, a lot of people will celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful we can proclaim that not just one Sunday out of the year. It's, it's a dominant theme in the gospel of the Son of God, the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to remember that today. Next Sunday, don't forget this past Sunday was Easter. You think about the next day symbolizing the, record, the resurrection of the Son of God. We meet on the first day of the week once again out of the recognition and also out of the celebration of our Savior as He came forth out of the grave. He was resurrected by His own power. He came out of that grave a conqueror, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Yes, he did. And after John saw all of this, says he fell down his feet as if he were dead. When he saw this great vision, it didn't exalt him. It didn't puff him up. He fell in his feet as dead. I tell you, a lot of people got man too high and God too low. If you see God any lower than, the, than his throne in glory, you got him too low. If you see man any higher than the dust of the earth right here, you got him too high. You need to see yourself as nothing but just a worm of the dust. So I said, Brother Lawrence, uh, be more people in the pews, old Baptist churches. They got better recognition. <laughs> they just don't like the recognition we give them. I mean, uh, who wants to be called a worm, right? But the Bible calls us a worm. Who wants to be called the grass of the field? The Bible calls us the grass of the field. Who wants to call be called the dust of the earth? That's what the Bible calls us. But let me tell you something else. The Bible calls you an heir of God and a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ, too. That's pretty good recognition, isn't it? I'll tell you, I'll take the dust if I can get the airship over here any day of the week. Uh, I want to come to the house of God in a manner and way that I recognize my frailty, recognize my weakness, recognize my unworthiness, but recognize the great power of God, the glory of Christ. Uh, I want to give him the praise and the honor and the glory for everything he's done for me. And I cannot do that if I see myself any higher than the very dust of this earth here. Reminds me of book of Isaiah chapter 6. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and sitting upon his throne. It was a sad time when Uzziah died. A leader had died in Israel. What did Isaiah say? He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Anytime I know anybody that dies, I want to see the Lord. I know that's our only hope. I want to see the Lord. And I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up in his train. That means his glory. It filled the temple like the wedding train, you know, I mean, a train of a wedding dress coming down the aisle. It says his train, uh, you know, his glory filled it up. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and uh, his, his glory was there. And the seraphims was there, and, and they, uh, you know, they uh, covered their faces and covered their feet, and, and uh, with the wings they did fly, et cetera, et cetera. And what was Isaiah's response then? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And he just felt like he was nothing more than just the very depths of this earth right here in his depraved condition. But thank God he's seen the Lord high and lifted up. He said, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But the Lord came along and laid his right hand upon me. And he says, I'm the first and the last. <laughs> earlier, 60 years earlier, John leaned on Jesus' breast. But now he fell at the feet of Jesus as if he were dead. Jesus laid his hand on him. He says, fear not. If you want to utilize your time a little bit and want to search the expression fear not in the Bible, you got three or four hours to do it, I'd encourage you to do it. You'll find it's in excess of 300 times in the Bible. And the very first time it's ever used is in Genesis 15, when Abraham came back from the battle of the kings. And the Lord addressed him and he said, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Here's the last time it's ever used. 
He says, fear not, I'm he that liveth, was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and have the keys of hell and death. You don't have to fear life, because Jesus is life. He said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father except by me. He said, I've come that you might have life, you might have it more abundantly. You don't have to fear life because Jesus Christ is life. He told Martha when he came to the grave of Lazarus, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. You don't have to fear life because he is life. And you don't have to fear death because the Lord Jesus Christ experienced death. And the Lord Jesus Christ conquered death. And the Lord Jesus Christ arose from death. He's the only one who laid his life down. He's the only one who took it again. He's the only one who raised his own life with his own power, and he's the only one who ever was resurrected not to die again. You don't have to worry or fear death because Jesus Christ conquered it. He came out of the grave, left it behind, went to heaven, and left it here on this earth where it belongs. And you don't have to worry about eternity either, do you? We're coming down the Interstate 65. I love these signs. Where are you going to spend eternity? Hell or heaven? That sign is designed to strike fear in you. <laughs> Just makes me shake my head in disbelief. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? I don't want to spend eternity in hell. I want to spend eternity in heaven. <laughs> and I believe with all my heart I'm going to be there. I don't have to spend, I don't have to fear eternity. The eternal God is there. The eternal Father, the eternal Son, the eternal Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit is there. And I'll be with him in eternity, and we'll have full, uninterrupted fellowship, you know, throughout all eternity. Can you imagine when we have fellowship with the Lord here, how wonderful it is? It's just a drop in the bucket. Now, my friends, compared to what it's going to be when you get to glory. He says, for I have the keys of hell and death. Who has the keys has the power. Who has the keys has the authority. And I'm telling you, you don't have to worry about death. You don't have to worry about life. You don't have to worry about eternity. You don't have to worry about hell because Jesus Christ was victorious and he, uh, he conquered all of that. He triumphed over all of that. And because he did, you have. That's why Paul said we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. You see why this book is encouraging? We just brushed the dust off this morning. They read that book. They got through the first chapter. I, I believe they was on their feet <laughs> shouting. <laughs> we lost that shout in the congregations, you know. And these two people shouted a whole lot. Uh, it would give heart attack to a lot of people today. <laughs> 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 if that took place. Well, I tell you, I, I do a lot of shouting right in here. And I like to shout with a loud shout. 